Hello, and welcome to Lots and Familiar, the show that remembers that Radio 4's Top of the Form, after it stopped being BBC One's Top of the Form, replaced its long-serving Jolly String-led theme tune in 1986 with Emerson, Lake and Palmer's version of Fanfare for the Common Man in a desperate bid to move with the times and avoid being cancelled. It didn't work. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is only Connect champion and QI elf, Lydia Marsden. Lydia, what are you up to and where can we find it? I am currently QI elfing all over the internet and various methods of media. We are researching for the next series. We are writing books for QI. We are at Quikipedia, which is Q-I-K-I-P-E-D-I-A. And you can find me in a more personal and ranty capacity at Lydia Meisen on Twitter. Always good to have a ranty capacity. But for your first choice, we've got something that I really hope QI never, ever mind for facts. Okay, that was a little bit of synth music by Gelg. We'll be coming back to who they are in a minute. But from the opening titles of Look Around You, Lydia, look around you, look around you, just look around you. This is probably remembered by more people than maybe some of my other choices, but I really want to talk about it because I think it is one of the funniest things I have ever seen in my whole life. And I think it's just never got the critical acclaim or replay. I can't find it on any streaming services. Look Around You is two series of surreal nonsense written by Peter Serafinowicz and Robert Popper. The first series is focused on a parody of schools and colleges, educational programmes that we all had to sit in front of a big cathode ray tube television in the 80s and 90s and watch. So little fake experiments about calcium and milk and ghosts. And then the second series is a sort of fake tomorrow's world, which I think you and I had a little chat before this and you prefer the first series and I honestly prefer the second series, which I think a lot of people do. And I just think it is some of the most beautifully satirical detailed television I've ever seen. Nothing's ever really done anything similar. Nothing's ever come close to the absolute insanity. And I think Look Around You's got, I see it referenced a lot on Twitter as people suddenly realise that other people know what they're talking about when they say things like Synthesizer Patel and Medibot. Medibot. I'm really pleased that I found on Twitter a few other people that know what I'm talking about because it is, it's just glorious nonsense. Well, before we go on to the show itself, there's something I really wanted to talk about about the whole origin of it because weirdly, by accident, I was there on the ground level because anyone who's got the DVD will know there's the double length pilot because the series one, they're 10 minutes each, I think, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And the pilot calcium is 20 minutes what they did with that is i'm not sure whether they just made it themselves or whether it was actually made for talkback productions who later made the series when that pilot had been made this shows how long ago it was they sent out vhs copies of it to people they thought were kind of tastemakers in the early days of you know internet fandom and there was an immediate buzz about it you know people posting about it all over forums getting really excited and when they went to a series they did try to repeat that a bit with the music episode with the song hey little mouse yeah they kind of tried to hype that up a bit and it didn't work the same way but series one i absolutely adored i understood all the reference points and 
what was really weird was I actually, when I say I knew Peter from way back, I knew him by sight when I first started going to places like Planet X or whatever when I was like 16. He hung around with a different crowd. He was just a very tall bloke that I recognised by sight. I didn't really know. And then later he started popping up on things like The Knowledge, which was Radio 1's kind of rockumentary spoof in the early 90s. Obviously he did some voices. He was in Star Wars for crying out loud. And I was thinking, that's that bloke. I also saw him being interviewed and he talked about how he had an exact same route into the Beatles as me, was that, you know, coming from Liverpool... It was not a done thing to like the Beatles in the 80s, but he loved Monty Python, saw the Ruttles, and somebody mm-hmm. said to him, well, if you like the Ruttles, you'll love the Beatles. <laughs> That's exactly what happened to me. I thought all along, had I just gone over and talked to that really tall bloke, we would have immediately been saying, do you remember seeing and doing and stop, look, listen, you know, all the shows that went into series one of Look Around You? That is such a bizarre thing, really. Yeah, I guess but you've both got similar wheelhouses of focusing on nostalgia in a very specific sense like a couple of my other choices it's got so many people that pop up that you just think oh my goodness there they are Pam Batchelor is Olivia Coleman in the second series Olivia Coleman's in it and obviously look at her now but also Josie Darby from Blue Peter is in second series who I mean who knew she had comedy timing but she really does I think I've only ever seen her on this Blue Peter and Songs of Praise so it's a really odd choice to cast her but she's got that Blue Peter geniality so it really works it's just some very odd television i mean they do these experiments obviously that are quasi futuristic they shrink a runner down to see if she runs faster and they've got harry enfield playing the ghost of tchaikovsky (laughs) in music 2000 which also contains one of the most exciting songs of all time the rapping song and macadainu obviously people who have watched this know exactly what i'm talking about and if you've never seen this you will think this is absolutely bizarre it's just it's got a lot of people that turn up and you just think oh there they are michael fenton stevens mark heat matt lucas benedict wong who's now in marvel movies started off in this and 15 stories higher tiny tiny little productions it's, i really implore you to seek this out if you don't know what I'm talking about is absolutely glorious. And of course, fellow looked unfamiliar guest Paul Putner as Clive Pounds and Len yes, Pounds. Which I... It's full of jokes like that. that it's just really, it's like when, as we'll come back to, Peter later had his own sketch show where there's the Big Brother spoof when the contestant is asked, what does argy bargy mean by the time he says, I think it's short for argument bargument. It's all these ridiculous <laughs> things that you've thought to yourself over the years. And some of these turned them into a proper joke. And I love it for that. And what was really really interesting was in series one there's one throwaway joke about thanking some ants and it says thanks ants thanks ants yeah and then later i remember this in series two there's a building sort of thanks every week they repeat that joke and people were getting really fed up of it on forums and say that just doesn't work there's something else that doesn't work which the cast themselves say that work which again we'll come back to but people like say oh i've had enough of this really repetitive but then in the last episode there are two blokes called hank who helped move some scenery and he says thanks hanks thanks <laughs> ta-da <laughs> I love that. I didn't know. I wasn't on forums when I first saw this. I wasn't on those forums. So I didn't. I love that joke. I love jokes that just are relentless and never stop. But when I saw thanks, Hanks, thanks, I thought it was absolutely perfect. 
they've just got things that I've just never seen. You know, you watch something and you see jokes and you think, oh, that's like that. And there's the Paul Putner bit where he goes into the restaurant and orders the casserole. And there's this huge sort of there's this big emphasis on, oh, this is the future. And it's just this absolutely ponderous way of electronically ordering a casserole that's much, much slower <laughs> than actually ordering. a casserole. And the fact that it's a casserole and they have all these things like everybody eats casserole. The average person eats eight casseroles a week. So how are we going to do this? There's just acceptance of casserole as a fast food option for the future, which is obviously casserole is one of the most time consuming and boring things you can possibly make. It's, I've just never seen anything like that. The, the scary picture in series two as well, which has been touted as this new weight loss product. And if you see this, you'll be frightened into losing weight. And they have this huge buildup of we're going to show the scary picture. You know, in modern days, we'd say trigger warning, scary picture. And they show it for a second and it's just a bear and a skeleton. And then they accidentally show it several more times during the episode just for a freeze frame. If anyone has ever seen anything funnier than that, I disagree. <laughs> that, though, is something that... I don't want to sound like grumpy Twitter man here, but I get this a lot. There are two things, both in the second series to look around you, that I just roll my eyes whenever they come up in replies to me. Apologies to anyone listening who's ever done this, but one is that if I ever mentioned things like being scared of the clown from the test card when there was a small child, somebody will reply to that with the scary picture. <laughs> the other thing is, if you ever say something nice about a rap record from the 80s or early 90s, particularly when the top of the pops repeats are on, somebody will reply with an, I'm rapping, rapping. Now, that's a bit like Jazz Club from the Fast Show, where, you know, whenever you mention Miles Davis, somebody will reply with a nice gif. And yeah. you kind of think, but they've done that joke. You can't make it again. Yeah, you can't make that joke. That is the joke. But, you know, <laughs> I love the scary picture so much, I'm going to send it to you every day just to annoy you. <laughs> Sorry, that's how it is now. That is actually quite look around you in itself, but it is interesting, as you highlighted, that it's completely different approaches in each series, because series one is very much based on, well, I alluded to someone earlier, the ITV schools programme, because they were the ones that had done on that really manky film. The BBC ones tend to be on videotape. Things like yeah. seeing and doing good health, which Catherine Lowe talked about on here. And do you know about Experiment, which I think is the thing it's most closely based on? No. Where no, it, it started with they just had the word experiment and like a tone and it was like it was like this people moving around sort of half out of vision with test tubes and so on the bloke say write that down yeah the guy in the first series is really insistent on writing yes even things that are completely irrelevant down. but i used to be really creeped out by experiment when it was on so that really stayed in my mind but series two it's much more heavily based on tomorrow's world and, you know, shows like that, like Where There's Life and Don't Ask Me and so on, anything that had a panel of boffins basically <laughs> introducing the new innovations. What is interesting is they stick very closely to that. And also, both series kind of delve into the areas around that as well, because you've got the countdown clock, the school's countdown clock before series one, yeah. and the old BBC Two logo before series two. The one thing they do that doesn't quite fit that is in series two, all of the guests in the show in the in-show universe come in through a sort of elaborate blast door and what's interesting is they say on the commentary that they thought of that and then you know they paid for the effect and they thought this doesn't quite work comedically but we're stuck with it now yeah. we've got to use it yeah this doesn't work but we what can you do and that's how television works sometimes i suppose you just it's too late by the time you realize it doesn't work you just have to make the best of it i mean to be honest it's never taken away from it for me but i know what they mean it's a big effect that doesn't ever really quite land but i think there's enough going on that it doesn't really matter <laughs> 
<laughs> is it in the last episode where the emergency happens and they go to the film of British birds, including yeah. hand birds? There's a patched in Prince Charles from something else, or sorry, HRH Sir Prince Charles giving out an award. There is so much going on in such yeah, a short runtime. With, with Prince Charles that happens to Roger Moore in the episode of Knowing Me, Knowing You with Alan Partridge, where he's constantly on the way and you're getting updates about where he is and then he just arrives. I think you see more of Prince Charles than you do in Roger Moore. Yeah, Prince Charles is clearly photoshopped in quite badly. And in the meantime, David Mitchell and Ryan Cartwright get increasingly problematically stuck in a sex change machine, which I think might have been the first time I ever saw David Mitchell in that episode, but definitely not the first time I saw Ryan Cartwright, which is obvious. They, they look so young in that. Yeah, the Prince Charles thing, the first time I saw that, obviously, it was before, it was about 20 years ago, so it really blew my mind sort of how well they'd done that, because I think they could have played it for laughs by doing it badly, and it's obviously not him in that they play that bit reasonably straight, apart from calling him HRH, Sir Prince Charles. Think they're adequately respectful to our future king and there's also along those it's just those little slight tweaks of reality like when they sing happy birthday and they're putting another verse there's another verse yes and apparently oh that's based God. on the real life incident where they did that for a joke at somebody's birthday to see the reactions <laughs> of the other people in the restaurant oh i wish i'd thought of that <laughs> Birthdays are a time for celebration. Oh, I've forgotten all about that. So yeah, that's amazing. They bring all the other people back. So Matt Lucas, who's been diagnosed and later, I think, cured of cobbles, which is a disease that slowly turns you into rocks. But it also gives you the ability to fly. And Leonard Hatred, who I think is probably one of my favourite single appearance people of all time, Leonard Hatred, played by Mark Heap, who has been driven mad by the fact that he needs quiet. He requires a lot of quiet to lead his life. And his mother, who lives with him, and his wife both been diagnosed with an illness that makes them constantly scream. And so he's invented this spray, which he can spray in his ears and blocks them up. But he's clearly a man with some a lot of anger bubbling very very closely under the surface just his his inability to hold it together as a functioning member of society is and mark keeps just incredible in everything he's in but lend hatred is, is one of my favorite character creations of all time and in some ways even though on the one hand it is good that it's left where it was and it's just this great thing that existed it's also because of their love of that kind of detail it's a shame it didn't go further i mean they have occasionally done other bits like there was markets of britain the short film they did based on jack hargreaves in out of town when yeah. the new voiceover there was an intermission the cinema intermission they did to celebrate I think the 10th anniversary of it but it's the fact that you mentioned the DVDs we mentioned the intros and so on on the DVDs they go so much further in look around his own television universe it's got faked CFAX faked Billings yeah. for the evening that sort of thing it's the start of a children's programme called the Hexagons <laughs> it's like there's a world that's out there that they maybe haven't well actually I was thinking they haven't adequately explored it enough but I think the two things it really continued in where Robert Popper did some books called The Time Waster Letters yes. and Time Waster Diaries where they're missives from a very strange man who it's the polar opposite of are you aware of the Henry Root books in the 70s it was Willie Donaldson the theatre promoter who just had enough of people like Thatcher and so on and he just started writing letters to them posing as a diehard conservative voter but being ruder and ruder in support of them in each one 
say to Margaret Thatcher, it's great to see a strong man like yourself in charge. <laughs> this is the other direction. It's somebody who is well-meaning. It's just nobody can understand what he's talking about. Mm. Like the saga of the house handles. Yeah. But also, I think there's a direct line from this to Peter Severinowicz later did some YouTube sketches just for his own amusement. The O News ones and the Beatles inventing the iPod and so oh, on. Oh, yeah. That led to his BBC Two sketch show, which in many ways was Look Around You series three it was like that viewer television transplanted into up to the minute television really yeah i think like you say it is good that they left it where it was and i think anything you know if you've got something that in my opinion really 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 works expanding upon it and you know really going for it sort of trying you know trying to continue it directly sometimes spoils the magic a little bit but you're right in the, the peter serafinovich show definitely you can see the influence and the things that carried over and the sort of accidental jokes that continue and you're right that i haven't really thought about the time wasted lessons in a long time <laughs> i think i sought them out directly after look around you and i was like who is robert popper and what else had he done because it was before friday night dinner and all the other stuff that he's done more recently and the time wasted letters was all i could find and i found it in a charity shop and read it in a couple of sittings i think it was like wow that's similar but different you can see that there but i'm quite glad there's nothing really else like look around you because it's perfect as it is and i really love forcing people to watch it and just <laughs> saying sit down watch this if you've never heard of it and if you don't like it then we need to have a talk about why but okay and it did also ultimately give us brian butterfield whose yes. twitter feed i'm constantly grateful for did you see when it very first launched was it just a long stream of saying hello email password yes. ghoul with the l and the g transpose but there have been so many great things since then like the halloween where he said i'm watching this tonight with one foot in the grave brian butterfield is now i think a national comedy treasure and should be treated as such did you listen to his podcast over the lockdown i did and i loved that bit where it ended with him saying to somebody do you recognize this sound it's like the beeping that said yes it's a smoke alarm yeah, yeah oh he's just i mean i think that's another thing i think that in my actual world where i live and interact with people brian butterfield is quite niche but if i go on twitter where i think like my people are and i mention brian butterfield i will get a hundred replies of people with various brian butterfield favorites you know my brother will occasionally just message me with the words bon 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 bons the thing is, all 100 of those replies could accidentally be from Brian himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe some of them I've never forgotten when he said I'm printing out all my spam emails and taking them to the police so they can arrest the centres. <laughs> but before we just recite the whole of Brian Butterfield's Twitter feed, moving on to your next choice, which is another comedy show that was on around a similar time to look around you, but doesn't seem to have made quite the same impact. Hold this break, Ken. <whistles> Afternoon, All right, Vince. My husband here said he had a message for ya. Oh dear. Oh dear, oh dear. Those words make me very angry. Do you know why? Hello. Because... Because I never learnt how to read. Oh, for Christ's sake. Okay, there was a little bit of bickering from Mongrels, a show that I didn't pay that much attention to at the time, I'll admit. Lydia, tell me why I was wrong. Well, I didn't pay that much attention to it either, and an ex-boyfriend of mine corrected me about 2015, I think. I just thought, why did I never hear about this? It's a show about a group of sort of disparate animals. It's puppets 
stay with me. It's a group of puppets. It's a fox and a cat and a pigeon and a dog. And they all sort of live and hang out in the back of this pub in the Isle of Dogs in London and have sort of everyday problems that you or I might have. But they're a fox and a dog and a cat and a bird. So I haven't seen this since I saw it for the first time. I have literally, the reason I brought it up is because it's perfect for this show because I have literally never found anyone apart from the one ex-boyfriend who has ever heard of it. You could not make this show today. I have watched some of it. It's extremely of its time and that time is 2010. So we're not going back that far. But oh my goodness, I could not believe when I was watching how much stuff you just wouldn't be able to get away with like i know people say this now about like 70s comedians and 90s stuff but it's quite mean-spirited but there's so much stuff in there that's really really great so i'm gonna stay away from the mean-spirited stuff a little bit because what i want to talk about is there's just some incredible jokes in there and really good characters the main character is nelson who's this fox voiced by rufus jones it's another thing like look around you where people turn up in it and you think oh it's them oh it's fantastic katie brand who now has done good luck to you leo grand she's the voice of the pigeon lucy montgomery who is now everywhere including hey dougie which i've been watching a lot of is the dog and my favorite dan tetzel is the cat my favorite character marion who is this idiot cat that has a sort of nondescript accent and just is just a sort of beautiful idiot who stumbles around desperately trying to find a new owner but all of the owners he finds are old ladies who die in various different circumstances or try and castrate him and he can't he's more of a mongrel than he wants to be it's really surreal it's dark humor the first episode has got jokes about harold shipman it's got jokes about anne frank in there stuff you just wouldn't it would just immediately be thrown out today if you were trying to get a sitcom on the bbc it's just not there's something about like russell howard having a lazy eye it's like well great you know is it funny or are we just making fun of somebody's appearance it's not you know i'm no huge russell howard fan but it didn't seem very but they also have celebrities in there they have weird celebrity cameos where they take the piss out themselves and one of the first episodes has got paul ross just randomly eating out of a bin (laughs) for some reason Paul Ross turns up and then in the next shot, for no reason at all, they just show him eating out of a bin. But it's just it's got really clever stuff as well. So in the first episode, Nelson, who is this fox, is lying online that he's Toby Anstis who, you know, blast from the past. We want to talk about someone that not many people remember, Toby Anstis, and manages to get on a date with this woman that he thinks is really hot. But this woman turns out to be a chicken pretending to be a woman. So this fox and this chicken are on a date and they end up at this place called the boat docking station or something. And there's a sign that says river crossing station, maximum occupancy two. And there's this fox and this chicken and the fox is holding a bag of grain. And you just see the fox look to the camera because it's that problem about the fox and the chicken and the grain. But it's not explained. It's just, I think that's wonderful. And there's loads of surrealism as well. There's one where they've just asked Nelson what he's been up to. And what he's been up to is loads of scenes that actually happened verbatim in Only Fools and Horses, but have happened to the fox. You couldn't make it today, but it's it's a really great show if you can overlook all the slightly mean-spirited humour. Well, I think one of the reasons it got overlooked was partly because of that, but also, ironically, because it was over-promoted. Because I think it suffered in the same way a lot of the better BBC Three comedies suffered. Like, for example, on here, we've had Sophie Davis talked about ADBC mm. and Gabby Hutchins and Crouch talked about Monkey Dust, both of which I remember thinking at the time, you know what, not interested, because there was that whole thing about that time 
time. So much stuff before it even been on was over promoted as, you know, here is your new favourite comedy and it's very, very dark. And most yeah. things, when you watch them, were A, boring, and B, actually offensive. Because of that whole thing about people kind of... The default thing is to think the dark comedy thing goes back to Brass Eye and Blue Jam, mm. which obviously still wiped the floor with pretty much everything that came after them in that vein. But I think it goes back to Newman and Bedeal. And even they yeah. didn't quite get the tone right sometimes. There were a couple of sketches that even at the time in Newman and Bedeal in Pieces, I thought, did nobody say to you, don't do that? But, you know, that's already been 10 years of, like, people valuing how dark things were over how good they were. And Mongrels was promoted as Avenue Q meets Family Guy, but with puppet animals. And I think yeah. I probably saw that and thought, oh, you're having me on. And if I'd seen that bother. description of it, I absolutely wouldn't have watched it. But like you say, the stuff that doesn't, I mean, and you wonder how much is forced on them, like, you know, I'm Frank jokes and so on. Yeah. How much of the stuff that isn't that is actually really, really good. Yeah. Well, the thing, the thing is, and I, I don't want to get cancelled for saying this, but the Harold Shipman joke works. The, the joke is that Harold Shipman, and I'm sorry, you people, but like the, the joke is that Harold Shipman was in league with a load of elderly people's cats and the cats were really the mask behind it all. I like that it's a bad joke to make and you shouldn't be making jokes about that stuff. But I, it's, if you're going to make a bad joke, at least make it funny. Whereas a lot of the other ones, the joke about 9-11, the jokes about Anne Frank, the jokes about like... <sighs> There's a joke about R. Kelly in there. Years before R. Kelly stuff came to light, everybody sort of knew about it. If they don't land, then they're just offensive. And it's just the mean spiritedness about it as well. I know that's a word I've already used a lot, but just about celebrities as well. Like there's a joke about someone being fat or a joke about someone being ugly in the way I was. How old was I in 2010, 24? And I was getting to the stage where I was comfortable saying oh, you know what? Actually, I don't find that specific thing funny. I grew up in the 90s and the early 2000s where that mean-spiritedness was just a way of being humorous. And South Park, I remember feeling my mum is very anti-mean humour. And so things like that are, yeah, my mum would always intervene and be like, well, you know, it's not funny because it's just, it's horrible. What if, you know, it's horrible about disabled people. And I remember the early series of Family Guy as well were funny. And then around series four, they just started making jokes about people in wheelchairs and Nazis. And I was getting old enough that you just think jokes that I literally just look at that person different over there. That's not humour. That's just pointing you know and as someone who tried and hope mostly succeeded not to bully other people at school that's never really appealed to me so I think when you watch South Park and you're 15 or 16 or whatever it's tempting to be laughing at the jokes about disabled people and fat people but certainly by the time I saw Mongrels I had moved past that but there's enough in Mongrels that it's still worth watching. I think you have to buy it now on YouTube or Amazon Prime, which I did to refresh it for my show. And I don't really regret doing it because there's still so much in there that's really, really great. Well, I think, you know, maybe sort of the good content will that way. There's a Mongrels' case, but I think we've got a real problem coming up when, because a lot of this stuff from the 2000s and, you know, the early 2010s hasn't been available for a long time. Mm. And we're now in the situation where, by by and large, as I've remarked on here before, you know, the goodies, broadly speaking, they're the goodies, you know, Monty Python, the Beatles. This is even affected friends. People are picking out, you know, the more dubious elements in them, in things that are generally, that's mostly outweighed. 
by what isn't an issue with them. But in a lot of this sort of comedy, the idea was to be offensive. Yeah. And is this stuff, is it just that it's everyone's forgotten about it, it's rights problems or whatever, or, you know, the fact in some examples they were on BBC Three and nobody really knew they ever existed. Yeah. Or are people like, kind of trying to push them under the rug a bit for understandable reasons yeah i think there is a lot of that and i think you know this was something i didn't remember how dark the humor was until i went back and rewatched it for this podcast and then i was like oh i slightly regret this choice (laughs) because i am gonna have to address this because it's the offensiveness is so in your face and it was always something i didn't remember about this program specifically but it was mean humor has always been something that's that's not quite sat right with me but was so much a part of the culture and so much you know if you go back and watch old episodes of mock the week it's just being horrible about people i mean i think actually probably modern episodes of mock the week are about being horrible about people but that's how it was and i'm not saying that's okay and i am definitely not saying we should bring that back but i think you know there's a lot of people in mongrels who i really really respect you know, Katie Brand, for example, Rufus Jones, who have done a lot of brilliant stuff. Danielle Ward is one of the writers. I really love her. And so I don't think we can really, I don't think we should necessarily sweep it under the rug because it's such, there's enough in it, but I see why the temptation would be there. And I think, yeah, if you do, you can't put it on iPlayer now and promote it because you would immediately be in trouble on social media because within the first 10 minutes, there's three jokes there that would immediately get you pulled off air now and frothing articles about you in the Daily Mail and horrible things said about you. So I don't want to say maybe we have to forget about it because maybe we just remake Mongrels, but without any of the horrible jokes about people. Well, I'm inclined to think you can, to an extent, rehabilitate things that there are issues with if the good outweighs the bad. And also if the people involved say, yeah, you know, that was then, I wouldn't do that now. There is room for mongrels, I think. And also, it's not like they didn't try to make it a hit at the time, because not only were they on, I forgot about this, it was a comedy prom in 2011. The puppets were in that. But also, BBC Three had this thing about every programme they had to make a making of for. You know, like, yeah. there's some sense to doing Doctor Who Confidential and Torture Declassified, although even at the time I thought both of those were too long. You know, they did everything. I'm sure there was probably even Greg Davis firing cheese balls at a dog undogged or something, but they did Mongrels <laughs> Uncovered. Nobody needed that. I always find making ofs, and I'm really sorry because QI and its various offshoots have done various things, I always find them a bit self-indulgent of like, look at us we're really we're making it look at us look we're just normal people look at us making this thing watch us we're really interesting i always feel like personally i don't really care (laughs) and maybe you know as a person doing a podcast where i just talk about myself that's quite hypocritical (laughs) but i always find Unless it's, you know, things with a lot of special effects, I do always find them a little bit self-indulgent. But I think with with Mongols, I think with puppets, it's different, isn't it? Because there's a lot of practical stuff and puppets and people like seeing who's behind the puppets. So maybe that's different. But I think Mongols deserves to be rehabilitated, if for nothing else, just for Marion, the entirely unproblematic cat who is a beautiful hilarious soul who's just an idiot and gets most of the best lines and is one of the i think i hadn't really 
no offense to the person that voices him but he was one of the only voices one of the only names in it that i didn't really recognize from other things dan tetzel and i think his performance as marion the idiot cat is fantastic so i'd like to specifically mention him and rehabilitate that one character if nothing else well moving on to your next choice now which is a song where the band behind it would not have trusted twitter one bit Wondering what's in store. I'm always down for a night of sin, but first a night swim would be cool. Changed my clothes and went down to the pool. Soon as the water and my skin touched the adrenaline rush. As a little bit of Call the Hotel by Spooks, a song that I'll admit I'd completely forgotten about until you mentioned it. Lydia, what was it? <laughs> this is another thing I didn't look up before telling you about it and has turned out to be different from how I remember. So Spooks turned up, I think, I want to say when I was in high school sixth form and the Sugar Babes had just come out and I was really into that sort of female vocalising sound that they had and Spooks turned up and they had this great song called Karma Hotel and I am really, I'm always a sucker for a song with a narrative and Karma Hotel is this great song where the people in the band go to this hotel and then they check in and then weird things start happening so one of them goes to a casino and then it turns out he's been there for a hundred years and he starts to like crumble away to dust and then this woman is sort of lured into this honey trap and she can't get out and it's terrible and it's tragic so I have it on my Spotify because it's a sort of there's a group it's a bit like Big Brothers who were around at the same time where there's female vocalists and there's male vocalists and they sort of take over from each other and I never this is so embarrassing to admit but I never really properly listened to the lyrics I didn't listen to it all that much but I had always really loved the sound of the female vocalist on this song and on the other song that they did which I think was slightly more commercially successful which was called Things I've Seen which I think had Lawrence Fishburne in the video and then I went back and listened to it for this and it's quite violent and more sort of mainstream talking about like guns and shooting each other and gang violence and it was a different song than I actually remembered <laughs> so I had to sort of reassess how I felt about it but which was you know still good because I think it's an underrated song so yeah the female vocalist on that is it's very sugar babes it's sort of quite mellow but then when the rapping comes in there's a more violent undertone to it than I remember it's a song about some people going to a hotel and having a really bad time which as a sixth former having to listen to a lot of not necessarily Britney and Christina and stuff because I was not only listening to that but a sort of more indie mix Karma Hotel and Spooks really stood out to me as something a bit different and still stand out to me as something a bit different I think it's a really great song and I am always disappointed when nobody else remembers it well they really do seem to be in something a bit different because I hadn't really gone that far into their discography before you know I knew things I've seen in Karma Hotel because remember them being in the charts but it appears that they were very very paranoid they were actually called Spooks because of you know an obsession with what aren't they telling us and the scene CIA and so on and mm. they named themselves specifically after the spook who sat by the door which is a 1969 novel about the first black CIA agent and a lot of their lyrical themes oh you know what are they hiding from us that's sort of, in, yeah. in a very different way to it's even more paranoid than rap in the 80s or before all the gang violence came into it it is almost like 
one of those friends of friends on Facebook that replies to you know, oh God, something yeah. you said about, you know, I don't much like Jacob Rees-Mogg and they'll go into a big long thing about Deep State or something. It's kind of on that wavelength. But the other really weird thing I noticed was the album that it came from, which I think is called S-I-O-S-O-S. I think I've got that correct. It's like an actual album. It is 14 straight up. Well, I can legitimately say songs. There's a lot of female vocals on them. But, mm. you know, it's not like any other rap album from the time there's no remixes there's no guest appearances there's no skits yeah it doesn't do that disjointed thing that rap albums did it's trying to be a straightforward album and maybe i'm guessing given the nature of the obsessions we're thinking of sly and the family stone people like that and going for that sort of thing and maybe that's one of the reasons they didn't quite catch on was it wasn't what people expected from a rap album at all i had no i haven't researched very well for this podcast <laughs> I had no sense of any of this. I was, how old was I in 2000? And I heard this and I had heard Sugar Babes, which came out, I think, Overload by the Sugar Babes also came out the same year. And that the same female sound, I just find extremely appealing. And I was just super into Spooks for the year or so that they made any impact at all on commercial radio in the south of England. And then they just vanished. And, you know, it was early 2000. So when things were gone, they were gone and you couldn't find them. There was no YouTube. There was no Spotify. There was barely a Google, I think, in 2000. So you just had to accept that things were gone. And I, I don't think I even put them on any mix CDs or anything so it wasn't until Spotify really went mainstream that that I could even look it up back in the day you couldn't always find lyrics for everything that you wanted and Karma Hotel just disappeared into the back of my mind until one day about a decade ago I remembered it and dragged it back out and I still really enjoy it I think I like a lot of rap I think the mix actually of the vocalizing and the rap works really well I quite liked Big Brothers who were around at the same time who did the same thing and I'm not surprised at how powerful annoyed they were because I think that works well with the kind of songs that they were trying to put out but I wish they'd had a little more commercial success because I think they had a sound that really for me it really worked and maybe I'm looking at through rose tinted glasses but it was a great song about a scary hotel. Well I think it really stands up well and I think possibly one of the reasons why despite being you know they were both quite big hits both those Mm -hmm. singles but I think one of the reasons that they're maybe not well remembered is that like you say the female vocals are really dominant yeah and the rappers are front and center and you don't really know in inverted commas who the people are on the record there's nobody you can latch onto in the band because they are operating as a band it's not spooks feet whoever and maybe that has helped it not sort of it doesn't make sense to say helped it not lodge in people's memories maybe i mean i don't really i don't remember anything about i don't remember ever seeing the band on television i don't remember any magazine articles about them you know how did we find out about people in 2000 they were in smash hits magazine you know they were on cd uk sorry how did i find out about people in 2000 they were on cd uk they were in top of the pops magazine or smash hits you know maybe i read about them on teletext or something i don't remember remember ever seeing anything about them on there i wasn't sure i was pretty sure they were american i didn't know were they a band how many of them are there like i think the female vocalist in it is called ming jia and i think she's chinese but they didn't have any sort of public appearances that i remember seeing in the same way that you know you know who else came out around 2000 like westlife you know immediately who Westlife are and how many of them there are and what they look like and, you know, their exhausting personalities because 
you are exposed. I don't even like Westlife, but you you know, I know when I, I do a lot of quizzes and if a Westlife question comes up, I tend to know the answer. I hated Westlife, but you were <laughs> exposed to them so constantly. Like I know what order their singles came out in and I know who all the people are and their surnames and their love lives because you were exposed to that so consistently in the early 2000s if you consumed a lot of television, which I did, and read a lot of magazines, which I did. I don't remember ever seeing Spooks. I don't know who these people are, but I love their songs and they should have been played more and I'm sad that they never got a lot of airplay, although maybe if they got a bit paranoid, maybe it wouldn't have gone well for them in today's increasingly paranoid age. Maybe I shouldn't look up what they're doing now. Well, I was going to say, maybe you only thought you didn't see them because that's what the CIA <laughs> wanted you to see. Maybe they were hiding behind the curtains trying to hide from the Secret Service. Okay, well, we've got to the next choice now, which... Let's just say the lyrics on this probably troubled you for completely different reasons. <laughs> That was very evidently the Smurfs, not with no limits, but with the Smurfs are back, because heaven forbid they could just cover a song straight up that has about 35 words in it in total. That was from the Smurfs Go Pop from 1996, which is something I'd intentionally try to forget about. Lydia, you're going to remind me about it, aren't you? Bad luck. <laughs> I am not going to let you forget about this. This is basically the whole reason I wanted to come back on this podcast because I listened to Gabby Hutchinson Crouch's podcast about the Mr. Men album and I thought, oh, I remember an album like this that is even more annoying. And, and so I listened to the Smurfs Go Pop again. No, or just, the, sorry, I listened to the Smurfs Go Pop. This is just the Smurfs Go Pop. I didn't realise how many of the lyrics I still knew. So Smurfs Go Pop was released in 1996 it was 15 songs, 13 of which were covers, I think. And it is all the Smurfs. So the Smurfs covered, well, it wasn't really covered. They made their own little versions. And I'm amazed they got permission. To, I was going to say, these were already novelty songs. Why did they need me writing a Smurfs Because songs? it was the Smurfs. Well, not all of them. So All Right by Supergrass is covered there. It's now called We're the Smurfs. Love is All Around, Find the Smurf. I heard most of these songs for the first time, the Smurf version. So It's Oh So Quiet by Björk is covered. It's called The Noisy Smurf. I heard The Noisy Smurf a good couple of years before I ever heard the Björk version. This is how I learned music. I think the example, the best example on this album is Track 6. Smurfland, which is based on the Smokey song Living Next Door to Alice. Living Next Door to Alice is actually not originally even by Smokey, I don't think, but they did it, am I right? It was by Australian group New World. So it was originally by New World, and then Smokey covered it, and then Roy Chubby Brown covered it and added his new bit in where Living Next Door to Alice, Alice, who the fuck is Alice? which I, oh my God, I didn't realise until I was about 25 years old that that wasn't the original lyrics. But the Smurfland version of Living Next Door to Alice doesn't parody the original song. It parodies the Roy Chubby Brown song. That is obscene on so many levels. But this is why I always thought that was the original, because it goes like, when you're living here in Smurfland, Smurfland, 
where on earth is Smurfland? But like that extra little bit doesn't appear in the smoky version. It only appears in the Roy Chubby Brown version. And that's the bit that the Smurfs have decided to choose to cover. So no wonder I thought the Roy Chubby Brown version was the original. I was mainly going on what the Smurfs were telling me, which, you know, can't be trusted. There's, yeah, there's so many songs that sort of had, I think, an element of credibility. I want to be a hippie by Technohead. Maybe my youth made me think that was more credible than it was. But that's now about they do the out here brothers wiggle wiggle don't they which you know, was stop smurfing baby like i don't know these real i don't know the actual versions of these songs i only know the smurf versions so if you play them in a club or at a festival or whatever i am going to be singing the smurf version in my head and i expect everybody to respect that this is what i listen to on repeat honestly when i was looking at this as preparation for this podcast i really thought maybe this was released in 92 93 when i was sort of six or seven and it was released in 1996 so i was 10 years old when this came out i was definitely old enough to know better but i remember listening to this like on repeat in the bath i'm still a big fan of novelty music comedy music and i think the smurfs bear a lot of responsibility for that there's a great song about mr smurftastic which is bombastic by shaggy they've got a little a couple of little references to weed they're like don't give me a stimulant give me a herbal tea there's stuff for adults as well as kids and <laughs> And there's Mr. Blobby in the Smurfs, which I mean, is the thing what? That nobody is asked funny. for. I didn't re-listen to that one to try and... <laughs> I was unsettled by Mr. Blobby as a child. I am frightened of him as an adult, with the exception of the worst Blobby account on Twitter. I can do without a Mr. Blobby Smurfs collaboration. Do you know? I mean, there was the Smurfs Go Pop again in 1997, which the Wikipedia page for that doesn't list what the songs were based on. And frankly, I don't want to know. I'm not looking it up. But I definitely had that as well. Do you know what the song that didn't make it onto the first album? I could imagine quite a lot of people just said, stay away from Amy. Yeah, they did Wonderwall as Wondersmurf. <laughs> I mean that. And there's a story there because Noel Gallagher blocked it because, you know, he said, eh, I'm not having my songs done like that. That was around the same time he also prevented the Lemonheads from releasing a song he'd co written with them because he suddenly decided he didn't like the Lemonheads. He's got no business saying that when he's going around. I mean, I liked the Mike Flowers Pops version of Wonderwall, but, you know, Noel was saying, Yeah, I love that. And also he's recommending terrible Noel rock bands every time he opened his mouth, like Northern Opera, they're quite good then. I maintain there was a huge degree of hypocrisy there. Yeah. Hypocrisy for Noel Gallagher. What a surprise. I mean, yeah, exactly. I think, you know, history has not treated Noel Gallagher kindly. I mean, maybe his music, but he's, I think it's increasingly obvious what Noel Gallagher's really like. I have just found the track listing for the Smurfs Go Pop again. And I think I may have listened to this one even more than the Smurfs Go Pop. They had one where they covered the theme from Neighbours, which I think tells you everything you need to know about when this was released. They did 54321, but it was 31524, and that was all about a Smurf that couldn't remember what order the numbers went in. They had a cover of Brown Girl in the Ring, which I think is probably more problematic than they realised at the time. They had, well, uh, yeah, they had a cover of Mbop. I mean, it's beautifully of its time, and I don't know how my parents ever listened to a single second of this without putting us up for adoption, but it's, oh God, it's just awful. <laughs> 
Well, I remember being really baffled that it was promoted as the Smurfs are back. You know, that was a huge, big thing. And yeah. I'm just about old enough to very, very faintly remember the actual original Smurf mania. Because I remember I had one Smurf, it was a guitar playing one. I remember the Baron Knights doing a parody of the Smurfing song, more than remember the Smurfing song itself. I was aware they had hits. We had, I don't know where we got it from, but there was a parody of the Smurf records when they were temporarily withdrawn from sale in the UK because the amount of lead in the paint in them. <laughs> and there's a parody called, they misspelt it accidentally on the label to get away with, you know, this legally, but it's called Lick a Smurf for Christmas All Fall Down. <laughs> Unfortunately, it later turned out that was by Jonathan King. So that oh, was my right. lovely childhood memories of laughing at this deliberately offensive record were kind of taken away. But I also remember that feature-length film, The Smurfs and Magic Flute, which is more about those two medieval kids that hang around with them than it is about the actual Smurfs. It was always mm-hmm. on bank holidays. I remember having hysterics. When Euro Trash first started on Channel 4, it was when Euro Disney first opened and they sneaked the Smurf into Euro Disney and got ejected. <laughs> they kind of felt like it wasn't like now where everything is recycled and rebooted all the time it felt yeah. like a craze from years ago it had its moment it had been and gone it wasn't like the Muppets or something that endured or at least you know not over here I appreciate that in Europe the Smurfs are always massive but it was a bit kind of what do you mean they're back yeah. nobody's been asking for this see I was young enough that I was not I don't think I ever really watched the Smurfs they were just here on a tape that I had in my house and I listened to it a lot in the car and then maybe there was a cartoon I don't really remember. Most of my exposure to the Smurfs was through these two cassette tapes, Smurfs Go Pop, Smurfs Go Pop Again, that we listened to on repeat for hopefully not too long, my poor parents. <laughs> I just, I don't remember the Smurfs in any other sense, really, other than these two cassette tapes. And the thing is, there's good writing. Like, the parodies are very, very good. They're very tight. The lyrics are quite funny. They fit really well. The people that were responsible for this should have had better jobs. Like, they should have been writing proper stuff. They shouldn't have been writing loads of songs and having to replace one word in every five with the word Smurf. Like, they can do better. I feel, I, I hope they went on to better things. This is the problem. It, it creates a sense of ambiguity, which you can then exploit. I remember, like, even as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, people saying, oh, if you put the word, the F word in front of the word Smurf, it, it, that makes sense. That Smurf actually means, like, sir. And even as a 10 year old, I was like, I don't, I don't think it does. But the, the ambiguity is there and people will take advantage of it. So, yeah, they've dug their own grave there, really. So one thing that I'm really baffled by is most of the original songs on these two albums appear to be about sports. And I cannot figure out what is going on there. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, they've got the Smurfland Olympics. They've got Football Forever, which when I listened to, I was amazed that I remembered most of the lyrics to. It says it's got no reference to the Smurfs other than the fact that it's a Smurfing good game in the chorus. You can understand why people thought it was just a euphemism for swear words. If you say it's a Smurfing good game, people will just, you know, that's how your brain reacts. I mean, it's... I can't excuse it. <laughs> it's just, I love and I hate it simultaneously. I don't understand all the sporting references. As a child, I would have ignored those. I didn't pay any attention to any sports until I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. It would have all gone over my head. And of course, the main reason I dislike this album is they have taken Saturday Night by Wigfield, which is one of the best records ever made, and rewritten it as our Smurfing Party. And <laughs> frankly, no matter how many times you put the word Smurf in that, that is unforgivable. But we're traversing further across the globe for your next choice. And this is something that really I know nothing about at all. 
okay, that's a theme music from Liftoff and the Australian Children's Programme for the early 90s, though apparently we didn't get it over here until quite a bit later. Lydia, as I say, I know nothing about this. What was it? Oh, the horror, the horror of Liftoff. We watched this in the mornings on Channel 4, I think, my siblings and I, and it is the most disturbing children's programme that's ever been made. So from the first second of the credits, you are in an absolute world of horror. The characters are... There's a group of sort of plucky Australian children and their world is just surrounded by terror, but somehow they don't realise and it's supposed to be fun and quirky and educational. But they've just done... I don't understand. Are there groups of Australian children that are just in therapy, sort of millennial Australians who are now just in relentless therapy because liftoff was so normalised? I don't understand how people watched this without... I was so unsettled as a child by this. The first second of the credits, there's this character called EC, who is a doll, like a puppet that follows the children around, and it doesn't have a face. It's just this mannequin doll sort of about the size of a baby. It has no face. It has a head, but it's no features. And in the first second of the credits, there's this circle and the doll just falls lifeless onto the screen. And then the quirky music starts, but it just is already unsettling. Like, what the hell is going on? The doll can move its own head. There's a plant puppet with a giant eye that just watches everything. There's a puppet with huge, heavily lidded eyes shaped like this big sack, this shapeless sack. Well, they're trying to frighten us. I think they must have been trying to frighten us. But the premise of the show is that there are these children that I think maybe live in this block of flats and they learn things and they have, you know, significant developmental experiences and the puppets, I guess, help them. Oh, God, it's just unbearably sinister. Is this what Australian children enjoy? I want to talk to some Australian people about this because I literally don't think I've ever met anybody apart from my sister that remembers this. I can't be the only person that found this frightening. There's a lift. The whole point of liftoff is that they get into this lift, which then sort of gives them friendly advice. But watching it back, the lift sounds like GLaDOS from Portal. She's very, very calm and she encourages the children to be brave and to, you know, tell the truth and other, you know, worthy things. But the episode that I watched, the lift was encouraging a child to put her face into the water, to go underwater and was just like, it's fun. You should try it. It's fun. You know, there's this lift encouraging children to harm themselves. I don't understand how it got past any television executives, except if maybe in Australia people have a terrifyingly dark sense of humour. Well, they have friends in high places because I didn't quite understand the context of this. The Wikipedia page for Liftoff goes on for ever yeah <laughs> really seriously i am genuinely a bit concerned about whoever's contributed to that but there is a claim in it that it was officially launched by paul keating the australian prime minister at the time. that's a bit like john major launching come outside or something i mean is it, you know? oh yeah thatcher launching a bird behind <laughs> there you go maybe it's like the simpsons version of australia and there's only like 12 people there and they all know <laughs> each other really well it's a very odd program i think maybe it had some sort of vague environment mental theme but that was not apparent in anything that i saw there was a guy who was as a child i thought was really frightening this guy called mr fish who's one of the only he's the antagonist i guess he's a sort of 
large, misshapen. He's a he's an adult. He's not a puppet. He's a sort of male version of Mr. Trunchbull, where he's angry and an antagonist. But I watched it back. He's just a slightly officious building manager. He's not he's not a terrifying figure like I remembered him. He's one of the least frightening things about it in retrospect. But you know, even the adults in this are not on the children's side. It seems it just I don't understand how it got made. It's just one of the darkest, unintentionally darkest pieces of children's television I was exposed to as a kid and maybe my sister and I just didn't maybe we just completely misinterpreted the whole thing because it's not I don't think it's meant to be frightening or dark it's just it just is why would they create a doll without a face and make it follow the children around all the time what's that about I don't what's the thinking there I can see how it got this unintentionally dark and also by the same token I'm not surprised it wound up on channel 4 because it reminded me from what I saw of it of a collision of when channel 4 first started they had two types of children's programs both of which left you thinking am I being punished for something I'm being made to watch this? Because on the one hand, there were the weird sort of creepy educational puppety things like Treehouse and Pop's programme which bears some similarities to this. And on mm. the other, there was Everybody Here with Michael Rosen, which is a really it's shot on that really kind of depressing early 80s film that you know that you'll see footage of London streets on. Yeah. That really grainy, <laughs> grimy thing. And it started with loads of kids saying yes when he said Everybody Here in different languages and holding up cards you know it was really good intention to be you know properly multicultural and inclusive but it felt a bit too much like school yeah and also, television the intro went on forever and it had the bit where he went everybody very body everybody i'm not doing the whole thing because <laughs> i'll get it wrong but it just felt a bit too educational this is like both of those things smashed together so it's going to be twice as dark yeah it's like i i thought maybe i had misremembered it because i had i had talked to my sister about it before i'd sort of periodically mentioned it to her as something I'd because for years all I could remember was the puppet baby without a face and it wasn't until I managed to somehow get a google hit out of that that I realized I remembered what it was and I could sort of flesh out the memory a bit watching back there's you know there's storylines featuring you know children pretending to be sick in order to get out of television children being afraid to go swimming and the lift and the puppets help them around that I remembered none of that I remembered a very lot it felt very long I think the episodes were half an hour but for a kids program in the 90s that was quite long a very long program periodically interrupted by terrifying puppets that for some reason we watched because it was the 90s and there were four channels and we couldn't watch anything else my parents haven't got up yet it really stayed with me and there's an episode where one of the kids who's pretending to be sick vomits into a bag but the bag is also one of the puppets it's like a sort of toy story where you know the things come alive so the bag that he's sick into is also one of the puppets and nobody has stopped and said i think that's wrong like i don't think a child should be sick into what's being presented to us as a sentient being's mouth they just like it's a different time and i don't know maybe australia has different rules well i think it does because thinking back the australian children shows that stuck in my mind the most were things like i mean there were things like there was round the twist which you know was very light-hearted but it was quite twisted in a lot of places yeah and when it was shown by the bbc there were complaints to points of view all the time about it there's a henderson kids which was very adult in terms of the themes they explored and you know quite violent in places mm. the lost islands about the child geniuses on the round the world cruise that get washed up on an uncharted island where there's a mysterious sort of quasi-medieval community ruled over by a tyrant called the queue who is <laughs> oh, wears a mask to carry around the sedan chair always trying to dodge man-eating crabs as well <laughs> 
The other one was, funnily enough, on an ecological theme, an early 80s thing called Secret Valley, where it was about loads of kids who lived in basically an adventure playground where it had a network of tree houses with rope bridges between them. And the local businessman basically just wanted to demolish it. And yeah. it hinted that he didn't care whether they were in there or not. That park was coming down and, you know, I don't know, a factory or something was being built on it. So <laughs> I think they did have different rules, really. Although apparently Alan Kendall, who was the producer of the Australian version of Play School for a long time, was really vocally critical of Liftoff. He felt that it wasn't suitable and it was catering for short attention spans. And given the success of his career, I think he might be worth listening to. It was half an hour long. I mean, I think for short attention span, for British children's television, half an hour is a long time. Most of the things I watched as a kid were 10 minutes you know 10 minutes 15 minutes half an hour i specifically remember how long these episodes felt and i couldn't keep hold of the plot i wasn't sure there was a plot i don't think that's necessarily down to the length of it i think it's possibly just the fact that it was so bizarre and you know the kids are all you know australian child television actors but they're sort of not outshone but just completely dominated by this group of frightening puppets there's no reason given for why this doll doesn't have a face i don't think there's no reason given for why the giant sap with a frightening eyes it's the way it is there's no reason why Mr. Fish looks the way he does although you know you can't really judge people for the way they look it's just it just is these children are in this frightening building with a talking lift that only talks to them and doesn't talk to adults which I think is a trope that we see a lot in children's television things that you know only talk to children but you should always tell a responsible adult if a lift starts talking to you I think that's good advice well speaking of responsible adults I didn't go too far into this because you know any Australian program you watch more than 30 seconds there'll be somebody that you recognise from one of the soaps in it and I don't doubt there are a lot of people in this I mean Norman Yem because he was in everything has got to have been in this but the two names are really that down for me i'll say who one is and i'll see if you can guess the other louise Linay, who was sandy in prisoner cell block h was in it now who's the main one that people should recognize oh god who was in there i don't remember and was it mr fish no it was alan no. fletcher who was what? dr carl oh. kennedy in neighbors was oh, one of the adults really? in it i do you know what i honestly had no idea bless him I met him at university. I went to the University of East Anglia 2004 till 2008. And as part of the student nights, they would bring people from neighbours over occasionally. People from neighbours would come over and do tours of the university. So one of them was Joe Scully, who was a sort of cult favourite. And then Carl Kennedy, obviously, is a massive, massive neighbours icon, legend. And he, I was working at the student bar, the LCR, where all the concerts happen. And, and Alan came into the student night and sang some of his more serious music, which nobody was at all interested in everybody just wanted to see dr carl kennedy talk about his affair with izzy which i think hadn't happened very long ago when i was there yeah we met him briefly afterwards he was a very tipsy man <laughs> well i've just found out do you know what apparently he does as an encore he does living next door to alice but with lyrics about susan kennedy his on-screen wife and neighbors oh my god I have no memory of that. You didn't play in the Smurfs Go Pop, did you? No, sadly. I didn't command his attention for that long, but I wish I had. Okay, well, for your next choice, we've got two computer games that kind of linked in a way, and I'm guessing that maybe one or the other may have got you into university, but I don't know. We'll find out about that. (laughs) 
Okay, that was a bit of music from Math Rescue, which was made by the same production house as Secret Agent The Hunt for Red Rock Rover. Lydia, why did these games stand out to you so much? Because they were the only games that I had. So we got a computer, I think, after my parents telling us we would never get a computer. We got a computer in maybe 1994 or 95. And we were not at all au fait with games in our house. I didn't get a PlayStation until I was about 14 years old. We got the games that my friend Eleanor already had because she had the floppy disks and she let us borrow them or copy them or whatever you did back in those days. So there was a few games and these are the two that I remember. Math Rescue is probably one of the lamest games ever created. There's these little monsters who I think are called the Grizzles or the Gruzzles and they have stolen, I think they've stolen like years of people's lives off them and so you have to jump around and solve little puzzles and get the numbers back off these tiny little monsters i mean it's a, it's a little platform game it's, it's so old in my head it's maths rescue but i guess it's american so it must be math rescue which is what you said it's a sequel to word rescue apparently as well. we also had word rescue yeah which i think was an inferior game but it's just a tiny little platform game to teach children's math. It's the reason I know the word Pueblo, because there's a level in a Pueblo, which as a six-year-old or a seven-year-old in Dorset, I had no sense of what that would be. It's a little you know, Mexican or Southern American village and the, one of the levels is set there. Well, I noticed one of the levels is called Sea Candyland, which I really, really hope, given when this came out, is going to a concert by the early 90s indie band Candyland. There was a very popular American board game called Candyland, which I don't think made any impact of any sort over here. So that was probably a tie-in with that or desperately trying to jump off the back of it. You can play either as a boy or a girl, which as a child I really liked because a lot of places didn't give you any character selection at all. Most games didn't give you any choice of whether you wanted to be a boy or a girl but this one did it taught me maths in a fun way which was more than most of my teachers could do it had funky little music you know and sound effects which for you know me in 1995 sounded quite futuristic although listening back to them now they are extremely outdated and very similar to a lot of other stuff but I didn't have any other games I didn't have I think we eventually got Wolfenstein 3D which I didn't realize what a mainstream game Wolfenstein 3D had been until you know the internet really came into its own and I talked to people as an adult I thought it was just a game that me and my sister and my mum played and nobody else yeah we had Math Rescue and Red Rock Rover and Wolf 3D and that was basically all we had and the little pinball game obviously that launched up when you had Windows and that was all we played for about five years I've got to say actually having looked at a bit of Math Rescue it does look like you know a relative amount of fun but Secret Agent The Hunt for Red Rock Rover which is also made by is it Apogee or Apogee Software I'm not sure but my first thought was ow my eyes it's like the game in the episode of Community where they have to go into a computer game to unlock Pierce's father's will it seems to be very very repetitive the main character looks like Donald Trump which is a bit of a problem there's no music and all of the spy scenarios my first thought was I don't recall seeing any of that in GoldenEye and the creators of that later went on to make one of the worst received Duke Nukem games ever so there's a through line there I think it's probably not a very good game but when you're nine ten years old everything seems brilliant especially if it's one of the only computer games you've ever played 
made. We spent a lot of time on this. It does seem to be a lot of, you know, you have to go through this whole rigmarole of, you know, rotating spikes and platform jumping. And then you have to get the green key. And then once you've got the green key, you have to go all the way back to the beginning of the level to get the green door. And then you have to do the same thing to the red key. It's not a good game, but it's a game. And that's all I cared about at the age of 10 was that it was something to occupy my brain and my eyes. But it's very, looking back at it now, it's very American themed in a way that I hadn't really, you can't really absorb or critically think about when you're a child. I also did not get until I was an adult the pun in the name that the hunt for Red Rock Rover is the hunt for Red October. I'd never heard of the hunt for Red October. I was a child. It's not a good game. It's a little tiny platformer with a little guy that I've never seen before or since. I thought it was part of the Commander Keen series, but it turns out that it's part of the Secret Agent series, which I think might have been a ripoff. And looking on the internet for signs of it, I think it may have come free in a cereal box, which (laughs) wouldn't have been a cereal box that I got. It would have been a cereal box that a friend of mine had, and then we had borrowed the disc off her. So it came to me by an extremely indirect means. We didn't intentionally go and buy this game at any point, and I doubt very many people did. But that's how you got games in the 90s. You just, you got what you were given and you played it until you had to go to bed. And that was it. Well, there is that thing about, I don't think it's something that, I think it's only relatively recently that it stopped being an applicable thing, but I think it was absolutely true that successively, on a new platform, you know, when you've just got one, well, sometimes they're even properly games, but, you know, one or two things to play with, mm. that, like you say, it's just, what's important is that it's a game, because I can think, but I remember being absolutely dazzled by seeing one of those, you know, those sort of tennis things where you plug them into your TV and you twisted the dials, moved the bat up and down. Yeah. And thinking that was amazing. When we got a set expected, the number of people who say this, the game that came with it through the wall, which is basically just knocking a ball at a wall to knock bricks out of it. People are so fond of that. And, you know, it goes forward. You know, people got really fond memories of the games that came with the NES. You look at how many people now still reference Snake, the yeah. mobile game, where mobiles were literally just things you could phone and text on. It is that, it is the novelty of something new. And I don't know if that really, because, you know, consoles are now generations of each other as well do people really get that same feeling anymore i don't think so i think you know maybe this is naive of me to say but i think the day of really having your mind blown by something completely new in computer gaming is maybe over you know i played a lot of these little two-dimensional platform things and then i can remember really clearly the first time i saw the sims which is a certain type of game that's not going to be popular with a lot of gamers but it's very relevant to me and my life as a teenager and as an adult who enjoys gaming i still really enjoy the sims and the first time I saw the sims and the options and the possibilities of what you could do with it and the message it was giving you about what a game was completely blew my mind you know until then the games had been you know go and get this key and go to this door go and get this number and then you'll get a maths problem that you have to solve you know if we're looking at the examples of this in Wolfenstein 3D the message was kill Hitler sims was you know go and get a job as a postman and then ad nauseum live in a house and it was fine and but it was the graphics were different and the vibe was different and everything looked different and i think we then got a playstation we hadn't asked for a playstation but my parents randomly decided that one day we were not wealthy at all we were not a well-off family you know we were on one single income some single teacher's income and my parents one day picked us up from school and told us they bought us a playstation which i was baffled by because we hadn't begged for ages for one like we had to for everything else that we wanted they just i think they must have been on sale in Woolworths. 
I think they bought it at Woolworths, and they decided to buy us this game. And but all the games in that just blew us away as well. There was Let's Get Ready to Rumble Two, Hogs of War, which was voiced by Rick Mail and involved lumbering pigs, which were very difficult to control, trying to shoot at each other from across very poorly rendered hills. You know, a lot of games were coming out in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, which were just revelations in the way that you viewed the purpose and the sort of aesthetic of gaming. And I think we're beyond that now. I don't think we'll really ever get that back. I mean, it's okay. Everyone's childhood has got different revelations in it. And that was ours. And it was a great time and a really formative time for me, as I realised I was a person that enjoyed computer games and spent too much time on them. (laughs) Really annoyed my friends and family. These two games were formative in realising that actually. But yeah, these two are good examples of terrible computer games that I spent a lot of time playing between sort of 1995 and 1998. Well, I do have to ask, given, okay, probably the educational slant of Math Rescue contributed a little towards your education and your progress into university, but given that you did American studies, did Secret Agent on for Red Rock Rover help in that direction in any way? I mean, it clearly didn't hurt. <laughs> I think I talked about this like on the last episode I was in. I think the the American experience and American culture was just presented to me as the default and the good option. You know, American candy was better than our candy and American television was better than our television. And American spies were more exciting than our spies. You know, James Bond, even as a 10 year old to me, seemed old and boring. And he was some Commander Keen guy, super excited about keys. He seemed more exciting to me than James Bond. So, you know, what can you do? It was That is the reason I did American studies. I was totally intoxicated by that and felt that my destiny and my future was in America. And, and that was sort of how I felt at home because I had been exposed, I think, to so much of this media and what British stuff, you know, I had been exposed to didn't feel as natural. And then I went and did American studies and spent a year in America and came back and finished my degree and was furious in America and still am furious at America for so many reasons that you know I think a lot of people are now very on board with and so it had the opposite effect from the one I thought it would have I assumed I'd go and live in New York and have a life that was quite like Jennifer Aniston's and actually I just ended up being really furious at John F Kennedy so you know three four years of university not wasted okay well thankfully for your last choice we've got something that could not be more British if it tried but also it's maybe the definitive example of something that looked absolutely dazzling at the time that well doesn't now pages and c-facts there from one particular evening late in august 1997 where let's just say that music did not continue playing for long (laughs) i'll say no more about that but lydia we're actually scrolling through the pages and c-facts to talk about c-facts back chat and channel 4's magazine two words joined together what's your background with these (laughs) hello to the 12 people out there that remember back chat and zine back chat and zine were forums when forums 
weren't really a thing. Both of them were pages on teletext. I wish I could remember which pages they were. I think the zine might have been 142 on Channel 4. And they were sort of rotating as everything with teletext. You go to a page and then it, it just rotates around. So it goes to you. There's eight pages. It rotates every minute or 30 seconds or whatever. And you read the messages. And if you don't finish reading the messages in time, tough luck. You have to wait until they scroll around again. If you're under the age of 25, this is going to sound insane. But this is what happened. And so that chat was very uncynical and peppy. And, you know, people maybe under the age of 12 would write in and they would be like, oh, my God, have you heard the new Britney Spears single? It's amazing. Love from Lucy in Plymouth. And then somebody else would write, my geography teacher is so boring. Love from Daniel in Walsgrave. And it was just that. It was just very uncynical. But I was really entranced by it because here were people with little messages and you would get, as in forums, you would get little in-jokes, repetitive things. You would get sort of slightly early memes where people kept writing in, riffing on the same joke. And then you go over to Zine on Channel 4 and it's like the very unimpressed older sister of Backchat. And so I sort of flipped between the two. I wrote into Zine a couple of times and got my messages on there. And I've never felt cooler than when I had my name or my because you didn't write in with your real name on Zine. You had to find a cool pseudonym. There would be a person that was sort of overseeing it all. And they'd write little sort of quirky offbeat messages after all of them that would appear at the bottom of the screen. Zine had its own little culture where they really hated the Manic Street Preachers. And the person that moderated it was called WLW, which I think was White Line Warrior. I don't know what that really means. I always wanted to be more of a zine person than a backchat person, but I couldn't really give either of them up. And so before I actually migrated on to a Ben Folds 5 forum in maybe 2001, 2002, and really found my internet feet, Backchat and Zine were these very early examples of people writing in their opinions and getting them published. And you had to post them. I posted things to Zine, or I think maybe you could call as well, but I definitely posted things to Zine with a stamp and a post box. It's an incredibly inefficient way of getting your point across, but that's how you did it in 1999. Like It was really different times and it seems like an incredibly old-fashioned thing now but to me at the time they were just super exciting oh yeah because it was absolutely a very big thing if you got your name onto any of the teletext services yeah. you know, whether it was cfax or oracle stroke teletext it became or fortel which is the original channel four one i can't remember if it did any others but i know one time i definitely wrote into cfax it was after the pilot for kytv was on <laughs> in i think it was 1989 say how much i liked it you know that was on cfax and that was it was a little like being a yeah, you're famous. For a bit. Like, that's how you get on telly. And it's weird to think that, you know, at that point, not just was teletext as futuristic as it got, not all televisions had it. Yeah. So it was, it felt very exclusive as well, very high status. People absolutely love these services. That's how it's so sad to see them go, which, you know, they'd serve no purpose anymore, really, by about, I mean, it was relatively recent, wasn't it, when they were decommissioned? I think they were still super popular. I remember reading something about teletext being really popular in prisons. It was the closest you could get to the internet. Well, the very earliest internet was really quite like teletext in yeah. a way. When I look back on it now, you know, it was that thing of waiting for pages to load, of information being split across pages. I've been looking 
looking into this, apparently Zine was originally called Megazine and they yeah. dropped the Mega eventually. I think they probably thought it was a little too uncool, but that didn't stop them billing it as this is the place for yo. Yeah. So and- welcome to your very own mag. So, you know, they were trying to do that kind of number one magazine hip talk, which didn't work, especially because it was mostly framing, as you say, a lot of like very pretentious attempts at topical satire that didn't quite work. It was all just like offbeat people. I don't think anybody, I'm going to make an assumption now, and if anybody was like super into zine and cooler than I was, then I'm really sorry, but I don't think anyone on zine knew what really was going on. I think everybody (laughs) was trying to be cool. I was a very, very uncool. I was so like not, I wasn't a cool person at school. I couldn't figure out why I wasn't cool, but like, like I just knew that what it, whatever cool was, I wasn't it. But I wrote into Zine with something which I thought sounded like a joke that was like cynical enough that they might like, or like an opinion that I thought like might get on there that I didn't even really hold. It was just something I just thought I can write something that sounds like what they're writing. And I put my little thing on the bottom, which was like a Simpsons reference. And I thought like, whatever like i'll post this maybe maybe they'll think i'm cool and post it and they did and i was like you guys have fallen for it like i'm cool now because i you know you don't know how uncool i am in real life but i've written something which has tricked you into thinking i'm one of you and like i just you know so desperate to be accepted as this person like there were no i went to a school i went to a grammar school with no real people that were into what i was into so i was really into ben folds five which is a sort of really uncool american piano band which i was just really into i was really into like things like look around you which was afterwards but there's humor like that that nobody i just didn't have any friends that had the same interest as i did but here on cfax was the beginnings of people starting to talk about things that i could vaguely relate to and i was promised that by university as well like when you get to university there will be people there that share your interests and that turned out to be correct at school i felt very isolated so as sad as it sounds like zine started to talk to me in a way that I wanted to be talked to as a very sort of eye-rolling teenager desperate to be treated like an adult when I didn't know what that actually meant and I didn't know who any of these people were I wonder I really wonder what these people are up to now there was a really prolific person who used to write in called Fluffy the Evil One which you know when you're that was like the height of humour would be like haha Fluffy the Evil One like haha Fluffy and Evil what two opposing characteristics Fluffy the Evil One if you're out there I'm sorry I don't mean to like denigrate you but that was how it that was the height of humour in 2000 like I wonder who that person is like what did they do with their lives because they were just so they were such a prolific writer they might have been somebody I knew I bet that you know maybe they're working in television now they had a really creative way with words it was the internet before the internet for me and it was so it was such a revelation but I could never really like grasp I could never really feel part of it in the same way I didn't feel part of any real clique at school but they published a couple of my things and so I felt included and I remember once someone did a post of like a list of what they were getting all of the zeners for Christmas and they included me in that and I thought like oh my god I'm part of something even though I think they'd probably just written down a list of like random names from the previous day zine and written some random presents in there I felt included in that and so it was a real that's how I you know the forums that I went into as a late teenager and in my early 20s when I was at university helped also find a sense of belonging that I didn't get in general society until really late university.
university. And so it was important to me. And Backchat too, I think, was a much less cynical version of that and helped me sort of indulge my childlike side. I don't think I ever wrote into that, but there was a lot of sort of manufactured rivalry. Zine really hated Backchat, I think, because they were the uncool younger sibling. I wanted to be part of them both. I enjoyed the fact that we could all come together from different parts of the country and mention what bands we liked. And I think that's still, you know, that's how Twitter works in a way now. That's how nice Twitter works. We all talk about things we like. And the eye-rolling aspects of Zine are less favoured now. But that's what works when you're 15 years old. Well, I was going to say, I like the idea that the equivalents are going viral in those days was somebody getting three words before the end of what you said. And it rolls on to the next page. And like, oh, I'll have to wait for you to come back on <laughs> I now. I really want to see this. Unfortunately, there's very little of either of them out there. But two of the examples I found are really posing more questions than I expected. There are some zine pages where it indicates the sections are now you might be able to set me straight on this but sounds angst pen pals and macaulay now is that macaulay culkin about seven years after he'd stopped being a thing or is it fred macaulay from the after the clock show being given undue prominence i don't know is the answer to that i think maybe it was a problem page or something i don't remember macaulay it does sound like something you know they've picked this uncool person to have a little page about maybe it's a problem page isn't it? the main example of back chat that i found first of all there's a big long thing about soliciting entries of their review of 96 where it's <laughs> big long it basically says maybe you went along to see oasis at nebworth or euro 96 at wembley have you enjoyed tim henman's tennis success or damon's f1 championship win what about the Jarvis Jacko saga to take that split or the Spice Girls what was your favourite film or an event that made you angry or sad yeah. so you basically just got list of things that happened this year what are you annoyed about but then there's a page of correspondence where what really struck me I mean there are things like Rachel Age 11 from Leeds wrote in and said the Grand National is a barbaric event in the sporting calendar that's right. the long and short of their comment but elsewhere on there there's a comment saying Gehen is Blue Peter yes it's one of those teletext typos but further down the page there is also Gahai are the prices of Sega and Nintendo games so high and the consoles so cheap which you know it's a question that answers itself but also I wonder if Richard Herring's venture in the quiz dummy Ali was writing all of these <laughs> given the prevalence of G's Gehen is Blue Peter going to stop being a 30 minute advert for different theme parks by David age 18 from Salisbury now it's not aimed at you, David. Yeah, David. You, you, why are you watching it at 18? I mean, you've just seen it when your little sibling's been watching it and you've formed some opinions based on... Do you think he just failed to make Tracy Ireland successfully and you're still resentful yeah, about maybe that five just, years yeah, later? Maybe he's just angry <laughs> about it. But this is the thing. It was the sounding off page for people's useless opinions, 10-year-olds' useless opinions. Oh, there's someone on there from Ferndown, which is... I'm looking at the same page as you. Ferndown is... is two miles from the village where i grew up that's very close i would just like to say that i think grange hill and the biz which i have no idea what that is are a lot better than blue peter well believe you mark in fact well, they're different programs they're not completely kind of different genres well equatable you know, in any form. back in the day you would write in back chat and tell them that and two weeks later they might post it like it's just yeah it's the it's twitter now basically it's just very very slow twitter of just people with their wrong opinions <laughs> just telling but all of these people people mostly at you know the average age of the back chat poster is maybe 12 and the average age of the zine poster is maybe 16 or 17 so you know nobody's really worth taking very seriously with those g's instead of a w i do wonder i remember with cfax and teletext it used to glitch occasionally so y's you know letters would change into each other and numbers would sort of 
flicker on the screen so maybe that was a maybe that was a tech issue it was very very rudimentary stuff but I remember thinking it was just you know revolutionary that you could write into something on the television and have your name or your pseudonym on the television with your message and sort of nobody could stop you I did this without I'm certain I did this without the knowledge of my parents or my siblings they would never have even known I was looking at it I would probably wait until everybody else was out the room and then look at these pages you know I did it in secret you know <laughs> like we do most of our things on the internet we do them without any oversight and so it felt in that way quite grown up and in some ways i mean i am not one for looking at the past through rose tinted spectacles and you know frankly we are now in a cyber world where well even the word cyber world is out of date but literally earlier today on the looks and familiar twitter account somebody asked i kind of remember this program called they came from somewhere else it's on channel four mm. nobody else has ever heard of it now we have actually covered that on looks and familiar on the edition with jim sangster but immediately before i even had chance to reply someone else replied saying oh yeah here's all the episodes on youtube yeah you know that is a much better world but in some ways the simplicity of teletext where there were no rabbit holes to go down nothing was going to trouble you nobody was trying to start a fight with you information was in just the amount that you needed you know you might think oh i need to know more about x and y but it literally had a certain amount of space it could fill and that was it and there is something about that that in the face of the modern world in general is quite appealing yeah i think the the days of accepting that we didn't know are over and I think my sister messaged me I messaged her earlier to let her know I was recording this podcast again this evening and she said something about do you remember this tape all she could remember was something about a lovely snowman at Christmas and I just googled the words I think lovely day for a snowman and immediately a picture of a tape that I recognised from my childhood came up and I sent it to her and I was like is this it and she was like yep and now we can listen to the whole thing on YouTube and it's not lost information anymore it's all there is it sad for someone like me who really really loves remembering things that I had forgotten about it's sort of brilliant but I do miss those days where it was like oh here's some information about something that's all you're getting and you have to you know you have to figure out the rest yourself you have to think about it you have to go and search it out at a library or on the television at a certain time you know you have to watch CD UK at the time it's on or video it or that's it you know you have to watch The Office at the same time in The Office is a late example but you know you have to watch Neighbours at 5.35 every day because if you don't watch it you can't get it back you'll be out of the loop it was a more structured existence i think i have a real problem now in that my job for qi is a lot of searching around on the internet and in searching around on the internet for things i find other interesting things and in searching for the, uh, reading about those interesting things i find other interesting things and so my whole day sometimes is spent struggling to stay focused on the one interesting thing i'm supposed to be interested in and not the 450 other interesting tabs i've got open of, of rabbit holes i could legitimately go down and things i could find it's brilliant for quizzing and you know finding out interesting information for pub quizzes and online quiz leagues that i'm in but it's absolutely terrible for productivity it really is but if you really want to relive those days you can always watch the cfax pages on the look around you dvd yes lydia it's been brilliant thank you thank you so much Top of the Box Volume 2 by Tim Worthington. The story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes, from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and more albums of birdsong that you ever knew was possible to exist. More details at timworthington.org.